Welcome to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hanson, hosted by attorneys Sean Garner and Adam Hanson. Good morning, Yuma. This is Life, Death, and the Law, 560 AM, KBLU. I'm Sean Garner in studio here with Adam Hanson and Cody Beeson. And this morning, we are going to be talking about the Constitution, per usual, and why we can't get back to the traditional interpretation of the Constitution and the application of it, and, and, and for which it was originally written, and that is to limit the government in um, the, the lives of the, the people, allow the people to do what they do, to innovate, to own property, and to succeed on their own merits or fail, and uh, be allowed to do so without the government intervening. So a big issue that comes up when you're looking through the Constitution is the Second Amendment. Now, I'm not going to be talking about gun control today, although some of those issues may come up. But uh, what I want to talk about specifically is how have we gotten this so wrong in interpreting the Second Amendment? I think when you look at the Constitution in general and say, well, this is what it was for, and, and over the years, through court interpretations, we have gotten far from the actual text of the Constitution. You can look directly at the, the first couple amendments, and uh, you can see, yeah, we, we've got well off base. So the Second Amendment, let's start with that. It says, a well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed focus on that last portion, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now, some argue that uh, the Second Amendment only is applicable to those who are serving in a militia because of uh, the prologue there, a well-regulated militia. However, it has been uh, examined and held up in the Supreme Court again and again that throughout the history of the Second Amendment, it was specifically to be applied to the individual. It was a necessity for an individual to keep and bear arms in order for a militia to exist, and so therefore they put that in the preamble. But the actual right itself is is an individual right. And uh, we go back to that, and there are interpretations, specifically the seminal case in this is Heller versus the District of Columbia decided in 2008 where Justice Scalia was the writer of the opinion. And he describes that the Second Amendment is an individual right, but it doesn't come with unlimited ability for anybody to keep and bear any type of set of arms. And that's where he loses me a bit. He describes that it was written for individuals to bear arms, the type of which existed at the time that it was written. So we're talking Revolutionary War period. We're talking about muskets and, and single-shot pistols. And uh, so why don't we just have those types of things? Why don't we just interpret it that way? If that's really what it was intended for, just the people at the time to keep and bear arms that existed at the time, why doesn't everybody only have the right to bear uh, a single-shot handgun or a long rifle? And that's it. We, we've gone well beyond that. There were no Glocks back in uh, 17, when this was adopted, 91, the Second Amendment. Uh, there were no repeating rifles. 
there weren't even bolt action rifles at that time. You could only, you could, it, it, they were muzzle loading muskets. So if that's the argument, then we need to stop there. If, if we don't stop there, then that's not the argument. I mean, so if that's the case, does that mean the First Amendment only protects what's printed off a of press and, and nothing electronic at that point? I th- great point. So that's been interpreted too, that the press was the freedom of speech and the way that speech was circulated. Yeah. Now, of course, we, we circulated by printing it off this massive press that now is totally antiquated. And, uh, but that doesn't take away the understanding of what the right is to circulate your opinion. And, and, and the same thing goes with the guns. So the case in Heller was specifically about a handgun. And it was a, a special police officer of the District of Columbia. He wanted to uh, keep his handgun at home for protection. And the District of Columbia said, no, you're not allowed to unless you're issued a special license from the chief of police. And he was not issued that license, and so he's denied the ability to hold the handgun at home. And uh, the court ruled that that was, that was a violation of the Constitution. Well, there were no handguns of that type. So if he were to keep a Revolutionary War era pistol, the type of which Alexander Hamilton was killed with, right? Right, when they were dueling, yeah. Yeah, and... Uh, and, and and, and Justice Scalia said, no, that specifically was the type of gun that they were talking about because that was in existence when, when uh, the Constitution was written, or the Bill of Rights, rather. Um, then I think the argument would be a little stronger to that point. But that isn't the type of weapon. None of those weapons really exist or are used, I should say. They're, they exist in, in very private collections and museums, but they don't, they don't exist for the purpose of hunting for the defense of a state, a nation, any type of army, or even personal defense. So if we've gotten so far off base with the Second Amendment, what's to be done? Now, my argument isn't that uh, we should have no ban on guns whatsoever. This is my argument. We need to stop twisting the language of the Constitution to have it mean whatever is convenient for us at the time. Yes, our society has changed. It is much different. Weapons exist that did not exist at the time uh, when the Bill of Rights were written and uh, adopted and ratified. However, we can't just interpret it and sew in any understanding that we want at our convenience into the Constitution because that's when we start getting rights that aren't actually in the Constitution. And a lot of us get upset when that happens. For example, recently, the court has began to return to the original interpretation of the writing of the Constitution, uh, the written language of the Constitution, and that is read it to see whether or not certain rights exist in there. For example, the, the right to an abortion. And the final analysis was there is no mention of abortion in the Constitution. That's not to say that a woman a woman should not be allowed to have that if she so chooses. It's just not a constitutional right. But they're different arguments, and they're getting mixed together. Absolutely. So the, the argument on one side is a woman should have the right to kill her own baby, when, as long as it's within the womb or even, in some cases, shortly after. Um, I don't, I'm not going there. I'm just saying that's not in the Constitution. If you should or should not have that right, 
argue that before the legislatures. You could even argue that in front of Congress for a, for a national law, but it's not in the Constitution. Read the Constitution. It's not that lengthy, lengthy of a document. That right is not in there. So you can't say it's a constitutional right. When you talk about constitutional rights, look at the actual Constitution itself, look at the Bill of Rights, and then look at the 17 amendments that came after the Bill of Rights for a total of 27 amendments. If it's found in there, then it's a constitutional right. Why do we have those constitutional rights? Um, Originally, many of the Founding Fathers were very opposed to the adoption of the Bill of Rights. In fact, the Bill of Rights didn't even get adopted until two years after the Constitution was ratified. And uh, no, it was actually four years after the Constitution was ratified in uh, 1787. So the Bill of Rights was adopted in 1791. And there was a lot of opposition to that. And the reason that there was so much opposition to that, and you'll read this in both the Federalist Papers and the Anti-Federalist Papers, There were two sides of this argument here. And the arguments were, we want a government that is limited. If we give the government some power, we need to put checks and balances in where it makes it very difficult for the government to act and more difficult for the government to impose and take away the power of the people, especially the power that the people have not already conceded to it. So, for example, in the Ninth Amendment, it states that uh, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. That means anything that's not enumerated in the Bill of Rights or the Constitution isn't going to be interpreted interpreted in any way to restrain all the other rights that are retained by the people. The only purpose of the Constitution is to put the limits on the government and retain all other rights to the people. So in the Bill of Rights, people were concerned that once we start enumerating more and more rights, the right to um, freedom of speech, the right to freedom of press, the right to the freedom of worship and uh, to assemble and to bear arms and not have to have military men in your house during times of peace, Third Amendment. Um, They didn't want to enumerate those because they felt like it would at some point be twisted to say, well, we've enumerated all the rights that the people have and uh, anything that's not stated in there, then they don't have those rights. And I could easily see that argument. They wanted to say this is what the this the Constitution gives the government A, B, and C powers, and that's it. Everything else under the sun that's reserved to the people. But eventually, it was decided that the Bill of Rights were necessary to make it very specific as to what rights the people had that could not be voted away, what rights the people had that the government specifically was being placed in check and, and, and could not supersede. And then as a bookend to those rights, it said, these enumerated rights in the Constitution shall not be construed to deny the other rights retained by the people. They, that's right at the end of the Bill of Rights. So here we have these Bill of Rights, and, and many people think that we can vote away rights by a majority vote and just have laws written by our legislatures or through Congress that describes what restrictions ought to be had on speech. 
what restrictions ought to be had on the press, you know, what we should be able to put in Twitter feeds. Well, we'll look at what Alex Jones is going through. I mean, Alex Jones, you want to call it entertainment, whatever news, I don't know about that. But my point is, he was saying some things that were crazy. And a court, uh, was it a billion dollars or something like that? I mean, something, a, a crazy number he's going to bankrupt out of. Mm-hmm. But the point is, he doesn't really have freedom of speech to say any kind of crazy things anymore. Well, okay, so let's put this in context. Alex Jones, he he made a living and made a lot of money from denying that the Sandy Hook um, mass shooting occurred. I mean, yeah, I mean, he he, he said some crazy things, and that that's he, certainly he, one of them, he, yeah. He, he said that the... the People were making it up. Crisis actors and things like that, yeah. Yeah, the, 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 the mass shooting didn't really occur, and so he was getting a lot of people fired up about it, and he was a pretty good uh, radio host in the fact that he could convince people in his argument. But uh, ultimately, what he was doing was he was making money off of a controversy that was built up on lies. But they say the same thing about 9-11. You know, that I've heard 9-11 is an inside job. I've heard the earth is flat. I've heard all those things. But this is something that they actually took to court and they, they used against them and it stuck. So, and here's where I think that the civil judgment against Alex Jones was okay. Okay. Because it was libel, right? It was false. He was making false accusation, accusations that actually caused harm to other people. And uh, it was in a civil court. And when you can prove that something that you're doing is actually creating harm to, to somebody else, and, and what you're saying is a lie. Now, truth is a 100% defense to any charge for libel. And, but what he was saying wasn't true. And so they first had to prove that what he said was not true. And number two, they had to prove that what he said caused harm. And they did prove both those things. So you're not free to go out there and spew lies that destroy people's lives. And, and well, that's freedom of speech, so that's okay. Um, it's not protected under the First Amendment. What's protected is you can say it, and the government can't suppress you from saying it, but that doesn't mean your fellow men who are being injured by what you're saying can't go out there and, and, and get money damages against you. And that's exactly what happened in the Alex Jones case. We have to take a break. This is 560 AM KBLU, Life, Death, and the Law. More thought-provoking conversation coming up next on Life, Death, and the Law, right here after this. Hey, you, my Dave Ramsey here. If you listen to our show or know anything about us, then you know I only recommend products and services I trust and I believe in. That's why when it comes to protecting your assets and planning for your loved one's future, you've got to call my friends Sean Garner and Adam Hansen at the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen. I encourage you to take the first step and attend a free, no-pressure seminar and learn all of your options. The firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen has been educating the Yuma community for over 40 years, and this is the only area of law that they practice. Sean and Adam believe in giving free education to help people make smart decisions about their assets and help them leave a legacy for their family that they can be proud of. Schedule a free personal consultation today. Call 783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com. 
You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner, and Hanson, the law firm that has been voted Yuma's best six years in a row. Welcome back, Yuma. This is 560 AM KBLU, Life, Death, and the Law. We're talking about the Constitution and why is it so difficult for us to read the Constitution for what it says, interpret it, and apply the actual meaning. And so a good example of that is the Second Amendment which says that the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Very clear. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. There really can be only two interpretations of what the arms means. Is it arms, muskets, and single-shot pistols that existed during the time of the Revolutionary War and at the time that the Constitution was written and the Bill of Rights was adopted? Or is it any type of arms? That's really the question. And the interpretation in the most recent and most seminal court, Supreme Court cases has been that it, it applies to arms that exist for self-defense and arms that exist today, not just those arms that existed back then. Now, if you look back in the history of the Second Amendment, the purpose that it was written, and if you look through each of the amendments as they go, the primary purpose was to prevent the tyranny of the government over the people. So they're writing this right of the people into the Bill of Rights to prevent the tyranny of the government over the people. And the type of weapons that was used to prevent that was the type of weapons the government had. The people can also possess those types of weapons, meaning muskets and single-shot pistols, even up to cannons. I don't think that anybody that had a cannon at that time personally owned would be uh, convicted. I've never seen any case to that extent for violating the Second Amendment because that's not what it intended. It was intended to prevent the government from infringing on the people's rights. So what does the government have today? Well, they've got armored <laughs> trucks. They've got Humvees with 50 caliber automatic weapons. They have drones. The tops, right? They've got, you know predator drones that they can, you know, do a strike from 10,000 feet. So does that mean that we should have those as well? And my answer is no. I think that our society, and, and maybe others disagree with me, but my answer is no. And I think that a majority of the citizens of the United States would agree with that, including lawmakers and, and um, the states in general, would agree that we shouldn't have access to every weapon that the government has access to right now because that just makes individuals too darn dangerous. At the time where they had muskets and single-shot um, handguns, that was reasonable. So what we need to do is not put in laws that twist and turn upside down the Second Amendment. What we need to do is amend the Second Amendment and create something new that is more akin to what we what we want today. What do we need today? Um, do we need to have an army to stand up against the federal government? Well, there is a small fraction of people out there that say yes, but I think a majority of the people, two-thirds of Congress, would say no. Three-quarters of the states would say no. And that's what you need to amend the Bill of Rights or the Constitution, and that's what we should do. We should amend it so we can read the... Second Amendment and all other amendments for their clear written words in the, in the actual verbiage 
and not have to twist it to fit within the society. Let's amend it to fit within the society. Because once you start twisting one amendment, then all the others lose any type of credibility because you can now begin to twist those and work out the rights that exist in them, such as freedom of speech, freedom of religion, so on and so forth, as was done during COVID, where people were not allowed to assemble and worship as they saw fit. And uh, they were not allowed to speak about whether or not the COVID vaccine was something that was well enough studied and developed and, and a, a mandate for them was a good thing or the origins of COVID or whether or not the election was rigged. All of those things having to do with the First Amendment rights were being suppressed. And people got away from reading the First Amendment because we could twist it. I think we need to get right back to this is, this is what the, the wording says, and unless that's amended, that's exactly what we're going to do. The reason that our founding fathers put it all together is because they were afraid that a 51% majority population would start to um, exercise mob rule and take away the rights of the individual citizens. Aren't we seeing that? And that's exactly what we're seeing. And that's exactly what they were afraid about. They were not just afraid about the government, but they were afraid about a mob rule. They were afraid about an ignorant majority or even an informed majority, but taking away the rights of the individual. They wanted to secure the rights of the individual. And so they wrote those out in the Constitution, and they wrote the Constitution to be a framework which contained in and bound in the government. So we've gotten up too far away from that. I think that the Second Amendment needs to be updated, and we need to bear strict adhe- adherence to um, every word that's in the Constitution, and if it's not consistent with today's societal norms, then we need to amend it so we can continue to do that and function in society. So here, here's one more thing that I'll lead in with. When it gets down to it, the Constitution sets forth rights that cannot be infringed upon, right, at all. Not with, not with little laws and little restrictions or a little bit of censorship here or there. Not at all. They cannot be infringed upon at all. If you want to change those rights, amend the Constitution. Get three-quarters of the states on board. Get two-thirds of Congress, both the House and the Senate, on board and amend the Constitution. If you don't do that, then the rights stick. So what do those rights predominantly do? They allow for people to be free from the interference of, number one, government, and number two, the masses. 51% of the majority voting in laws that would take away certain rights. And the fundamental rights are the right to property, the right to freedom, to act as you choose, and uh, the right to life. So I can't go out there and use my Second Amendment right to bear arms and and kill somebody without repercussions. I don't have the right to kill somebody unless it's in self-defense or defending my state or my country. So I should be punished for that. And so laws that prohibit murder are absolutely fine and they are not an infringement upon that right. But with regard to property and the freedom to use that property as I see fit and to live without the interference of somebody else getting in my way as to what business I run and how I conduct my affairs, those are fundamental rights. There, there are three pillars of those, of 
the fundamental existence here in America. If I don't have the right to possess property, then I can't conduct business. I don't own my thoughts. I don't own my intellectual property. I don't own um, the products that I manufacture or even the ideas that I generate. I don't own those because those are all property. And if I don't own those, then I can't generate an income from that. I can't support my family. Now, did that have anything to do with, I mean, back then, in order to vote, you had to be a property owner, which isn't a bad idea. I mean, if you're going to uh, make a decision on, you know, the tax base, maybe you should have some skin in the game. But did that have anything to do with that being a part of it? Life, liberty, you know, I mean, the, you have the pursuit or you have the option for, for property. Right. And if you purchase property now, you're a part of this voting sure. you know, voice. And, 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 of course, this goes back to the Declaration of Independence where it states that, you know, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Yeah. That is what we're all looking for, and that's what we're all entitled to, and these are inalienable rights, meaning God-given. The man can't take those rights away. And so I don't know if they were specifically referring to that's what you need to have in order to vote, but what you, I do know is you need to have those in order to have a free people, to, to truly be free. If the government owns the property, then I can't be free because then I can't innovate and create and own the services and the products that, I, that are generated because somebody else owns that property. And uh, as soon as the idea escapes my head, somebody else owns that idea. So the ownership of property is absolutely essential. And, and the freedom to think and to speak and to develop those ideas and to innovate, that has to be protected. And the freedom to live, and I think that goes along with my freedom to live cannot be imposed upon by your freedom to bear arms, right? Right, right. And, uh, but so it's life first. Yeah. And then it's bare arms to secure life, not to take life. But I mean, that's where I guess it's on me to make sure I don't do anything that, that violates your, your you know, freedom. Your, yes. your, I don't hurt you. I don't harm you anyway. And, and, and we've gotten so, so far away from this, you know, especially with this woke ideology and, and, and all of these um, pronouns that we're, we're so upset about people choosing different pronouns. And I think that the real argument is, I don't care what pronoun you use, but don't impose it on me to speak the way that you want me to speak, right? You have the right to live however you want, unimpeded by me. But I also have the right to speak my mind. And if I do actually cause you harm, like in the Alex Jones case, sue me for libel, right? If I'm wrong and I'm spewing out lies that actually cause you actual damages that, that can be proved, then sue me for libel. But other than that, let me speak however I want. I'll let you speak however you want, identify however you want. So I think we need to, rather than continue to um, argue for tolerance of everybody's ideas and concept of what is reality, we need to argue for let everybody alone. So, stay out of my business, and so I'll stay out of yours. Why not the same principle on the Second Amendment? You know, you're allowed to have any type of firearm or weapon that the government has, mm -hmm. as long as you are, are reasonable and you can afford it and everything like that. But if you um, prove that you can't handle that responsibility, then obviously you don't have those rights. Well, because I think that weapons are so dangerous today that by the time we find out that we, you're proved to be irresponsible with it, it's too late. You've caused too much destruction. I mean, you can't have like a, a surface-to-air missile, right, and to take down a passenger plane. That That's too dangerous. That's my argument. I, I hear you. So I think we should amend that 
the Bill of Rights and amend the Second Amendment. Um, but the, the three pillars, here, here's the thing. Here's, if, if you want to make creating laws easy and, and to determine whether or not they fit within the standards and the concepts that were um, the foundation of the Constitution, look at these three pillars. Does it impede on life? Does it impede on liberty, personal liberty? Does it impede on the ownership of property? So, for example, look at any law out there. I'll bring up a good, uh, you know, a common one. Seatbelts. Okay, I love it. Okay? Seatbelts. Does that impede on my liberty? Yeah, it does. Because it's the government telling me what I have to do. Now, is it going to... And if I don't do this, is that going to infringe on somebody else's life, liberty, or property? If I don't wear my seatbelt, does that take away any of those three pillars from somebody else? I mean, they make that argument that when you don't make wear your seatbelt, you're you're not in control of the vehicle once you have an accident, and and the, you know there's well, issues. Okay, I know? think okay, I think that's a pretty like, weak argument. The seatbelt is to save the person's life who's wearing the seatbelt, not to save the person's life of the car that they hit. Right. Right? My seatbelt isn't going to lessen the damage of the accident or, or the car in the accident on the other side. No, but now we're just dealing with broken bones versus a, a fatality. So now, you know, mm -hmm. the EMTs at the scene uh, can get you on your way versus cleaning up a body. Well, I don't have the right to medical assistance. I'm, I'm saying my right is to make my decisions and live with my decisions to succeed or to fail, to help myself retain health or to decline. And that, that's where, so yes, we're bringing up the seatbelt argument. I, I would weigh in that that is an infringement upon liberty. I 100% I agree. I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not actually taking away anybody else's liberty or life or property by failing to wear my seatbelt. I think it's a good idea to wear a seatbelt, but it's my choice. Same thing with helmets for motorcycles. Now for children, I think that the government could make a good case that, listen, we are protecting this child's life by requiring you as a parent to make sure that they're buckled up, okay? And I think that they would have that good argument because as a parent, we're putting them in the car. We're putting them at risk when we're driving them. So we need to put a seatbelt on them to protect their life so they can have liberty further on down the road. And so I think that's a good argument. I think the same thing goes with abortion, right? Abortion, we don't want to impose on somebody's right to do whatever they want with their body, whether they want to chop off their leg, their hand, pierce their nose, their lips, or destroy the fetus that is growing inside them. However... There is a life that we need to protect, and that is one of those fundamentals. So does the government have the, not only the right, but the obligation to protect the life of the citizens? And so the question becomes, what is life? And, and that's obviously a deeper issue for another, for another day. But that is what I'm talking about. If you can't justify the law on those three pillars, then the law should not exist at all because it infringes on the fundamental basis that we are here and have inalienable rights of life, liberty, and property. We have to take a break. This is 560 AM KBLU. More thought-provoking conversation coming up next on Life, Death, and the Law, right here after this.
Hey you, my Dave Ramsey here. If you listen to our show or know anything about us, then you know I only recommend products and services I trust and I believe in. That's why when it comes to protecting your assets and planning for your loved one's future, you've got to call my friends Sean Garner and Adam Hansen at the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen. I encourage you to take the first step and attend a free, no-pressure seminar and learn all of your options. The firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen has been educating the Yuma community for over 40 years, and this is the only area of law that they practice. Sean and Adam believe in giving free education to help people make smart decisions about their assets and help them leave a legacy for their family that they can be proud of. Schedule a free personal consultation today. Call 783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com. You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner, and Hanson, the law firm that has been voted Yuma's best six years in a row. Welcome back. This is 560 AM KBLU, Life, Death, and the Law. I'm Sean Garner, and I'm in studio with Adam Hanson and Cody Beeson. I've been talking about what the Constitution is and how we've twisted it beyond recognition, and we need to get back to the fundamental interpretation of the Constitution, and that may even mean bringing it up to date and specifically the Second Amendment. So the Second Amendment, I believe, says that we have the right to bear arms, and it doesn't restrict arms, or it doesn't define or couch that term in whatsoever. So we have the right to bear any arms without license, without any restriction. Do I think that's right? No. I think in today's society we need to amend that, and we need to bring in some types of restrictions because I think that some arms out there are far too dangerous for individual private citizens to own. Adam, you've done research on the gun laws and the restrictions that have come up through the years. What is your take on that? So I, I take issue with the idea of, in my opinion, it's it's all or nothing. And the proposition that you can limit some guns or some firearms or some type of destructive weapon without being on the slippery slope of taking it all away, which is where we're at now. Now we have the ATF coming into your home in the middle of the night without a warrant. They use the no-knock warrants. They, they bust down your house door and you come in, guns a-blazing, and you're in bed and they can do whatever they want because they've convinced a judge that you're a threat to humanity. That, that to me, is contrary to what our founders wanted. And a lot of those ATF nighttime raids are in in search of 3d printed weapons or firearms or some sort of uh, suppressor or that person is alleged to have something that they are not supposed to have theoretically under some sort of federal act and so the real big acts that have amended our right to have whatever you want as when it comes to a firearm is the National Firearms Act of 1934, that was the largest one because that's what really restricted the ability of most law-abiding citizens at the time from having anything that they wanted like a sawed-off shotgun or fully automatic weapons. 
And that was in response to, and, and if you look at the, the history here of our limitations on our right to bear arms, as it was intended by our founders, it really comes in response to an emotional response. It's an emotional response to historical things that were happening at the time. And in the 30s, there was mob rule in cities like Chicago and New York, where these where the gangs and the mobs were outpowering the actual law enforcement. So law enforcement was being gunned down by Tommy guns and fully automatic weapons and sawed off shotguns, concealable things like that. And, and so the response of the federal government was, well, yes, we have a right to bear arms, but not any arm that you want. We need to be able, we as a government need to be able to suppress our own people. Therefore, we're going to put out there a tax. If you don't have a, t- if you don't pay a tax and register a firearm that's on, in this type of class, then you're subject to imprisonment and fines and things like that. That particular tax is actually still in place today. It was two hundred dollars. So Cody, if you you're well aware of this, if you go to Spregs and you say, "Hey, I want to buy a, a suppressor for my AR-15." then you have to go through a paperwork process. We call it a tax stamp. You have to get a tax stamp. You have to register that that particular suppressor has its own identification number that's stamped on it, and that has to be registered with the federal government through the ATF. You have to go through the background checked uh, process, and you have to pay $200 to get that tax stamp. And wait about nine months. That number, that value has not changed. Back in the day, it would be equivalent to about four to $5,000. So it really was a restrictive thing back in the 30s when that $200 number was put up. The federal government has never raised the number for the tax stamp. So it's still the same number as or the same amount, $200, to get a tax stamp for a silencer or a suppressor or some sort of firearm that fits within the category that our are outlined in the NFA of 1934. So the NFA Act, um, really, it limited our ability to have anything we wanted, and that was compounded more and more over time. The The bigger issues that happened later on during the 60s were the assassinations of JFK, Robert F. Kennedy, you've got Martin Luther King. This was all impetus and fuel to the fire to say, whoa, 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 we've got to get firearms further regulated. We can't just have people going out and, and seeing an advertisement in a magazine and saying, oh, I want to buy that. So I put my money in the mail, drop it in the mailbox, and all of a sudden I get a gun to me in the mailbox within a week or two. So mail-in orders were really the the big issue when it came to JFK's assassination. The shooter in JFK in the JFK case, he he saw an advertisement in a magazine, and he sent away for the gun, got the gun, used it, and shot the president. So even in those hearings, when it came to, nothing changed until 1968. But that 1963 is when JFK was assassinated. And so obviously this is forefront and an emotional response. We need to get something done. That is a horrible event. We don't want that ever to happen again. And that fueled the fire of further legislation to restrict the ability of interstate commerce between um, me being able to say, Hey, I, I know this guy in California. I want to buy a gun. Can you just drop it in the mail to me? I'll give you the money through a wire transfer through my bank or through a check that was restricted at the time. Um, and it all started because of the 1963 JFK assassination. But then you had Martin Luther King shot in April of 1968. And you also had, uh, Robert Kennedy shot later in June of 1968 and 1968 is the biggest curb on interstate commerce 
using the interstate commerce clause of the constitution, which is constitutional. So if you, if you go to the constitution, you've got these, you've got these juxtaposed powers. You've got the power of Congress that has the ability to levy taxes and the ability to regulate interstate commerce that's expressed in our constitution. However, you've also got the second amendment that says we have a right to bear arms. So you've got this interstate commerce clause that's fighting with the right to bear arms clause and the gun control act of 1968 brought in further regulation under the interstate commerce clause that Congress used to say, whoa, 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 you can't just mail in and get a gun. You have to be able to um, go through a federal firearms licensed person, and we're going to make up the rules as to what that is. We're going to design this this agency called the ATF, and the ATF is going to be able to levy or promulgate rules and regulations. And if you don't abide by those, then they can come into your house and take your firearms or they can put you in jail or they can fine you. So we designed the ATF um, and the, the bat fee, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco Enforcement. And these agencies came out of the 1968 gun control act and other such historical emotional events, I would argue. And so getting back, the reason I bring that up, Sean, is because I would hate for my child to be gunned down in a, in a school shooting. I, I try to put myself in those Sandy Hook type situations or the Evaldi cases. Those are incredible tragedies in our history. And I don't think it's over. I think those will continue to happen. And the reason I say that is because, in my opinion, I believe that a person that wants to do harm will do harm regardless of whether there's a law that says that I can have a shotgun that's sawed off or a fully automatic weapon or not. You, you're you well aware, everybody's well aware that a criminal is a criminal and they, they're going to get whatever they want to get, however they're going to get it, whether that's drugs or fully automatic weapons, or weapons that are under the Gun Control Act, I think the common misconception is, that, oh, we're going to legislate this into, into existence, and therefore the problem will go away by magic. Magically, if we put this in law, oh, well, if you, have, if you, you cannot have or possess a shot, sawed-off shotgun or fully automatic weapon or a grenade or a, a rocket launcher or a drone that has the ability to kill people, you can't possess those. Why? Because we put it in this federal act. Oh, okay, but I still can. I can still get that. I can go to the dark market and I can pick up those items if I wanted, if I want to. Is it harder? Yeah, it's harder, but if I really want to, I can, and I can do a lot of damage. So just putting on a piece of paper and limiting the rights of all citizens, contrary to the Second Amendment, I think is, is, is not right. I think, that's, um, I think it's a re- restriction on our freedom, and I think law-abiding citizens have the right to do that. Law-abiding citizens can use a grenade launcher if they want to or a missile launcher if they want to or a drone that can kill people. Why? Because they're responsible people and they're going to be able to take care of that. I don't think we need the government to come in and say, you can't have this, that, or the other. I think bad people are going to get bad things or or use things for bad regardless of whether it's in legislation or not. That's just spitballing off the top of my head. Then that's my response to your, I think we need to change the Second Amendment. I agree with you. If we as a community believe that the Second Amendment is too broad and we do need to be more limited, then I absolutely agree with what you're talking about, Sean, in the sense of the only rightful way to do that is to amend the Constitution. There are, there are processes to make those changes, but we've got to go through the process to do those changes if we agree to it. But if we don't, I don't think the right way to do it is to use alternative ways like the tax, the tax power of Congress or the 
the uh, interstate commerce clause power of commerce army of Congress to, to limit our freedom that was given to us in the second amendment or the first amendment or, or any amendments. I think our God given rights are, are our God given rights and they need to be amended through the proper process or channels. If we're going to do that, I don't think we should do that. I disagree with you on that, Sean, but I think I do agree with you on the fact that if we are going to do it, then it has to go through the proper amendment channels, but not through, not through finding these kind of band-aid methods through Congress of, and pointing to different clauses that they actually have expressly in, in, in the Constitution, but they're against or I, I would argue that any constitutional power that the Congress has for levying taxes or, or regulating interstate commerce, if it oversteps on the Second Amendment or the First Amendment, then it's unconstitutional. They can't, they can't, it's, they're going too broad or without, outside that power. So they, they do have restrictions within those powers. They can't overstep on other bounds. And I think that's the conversation of the day. I, I think that's the point that you brought in in the very beginning of this conversation was that we have inalienable rights that are given to us by our creator. And really the government, the government doesn't give us rights. They don't grant us rights. The, our, our constitution is a protection against yeah. the government from infringing on our God-given rights. And we fail to see that most of our daily lives. Yeah, we feel like the government is giving us and, and we should be grateful for everything that we are allowed to do. No. Or we need to ask permission. It's we, really not that we way. We have the authority to own property, to exercise freedom, and to preserve our life as we see fit. The government should stay out of it unless it comes to the common defense of the people or the infringement upon the rights of others. That's all the time that we have for today. This is 560 AM KBLU, Life, Death, and the Law. If you have questions or want to know more about something that was discussed today, please call the law firm of Decent Garner, and Hanson at 928-783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com.